The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. Today we'd like to consider from the Word of God a very sensitive and emotional topic, and we certainly pray the Holy Spirit will bless us in this consideration. Today we'd like to talk about dealing with discouragement, depression, and even suicide. And I believe that we can see both from the world around us and from the Word of God as well that these are very common challenges. There's no one that doesn't deal with discouragement, and there are times where that discouragement continues over a long period of time that can lead to depression. And we all have known people that have had suicidal thoughts, that have wanted to end their own life, and we unfortunately know people that have succumbed to that temptation. So this is something that's common to man. And we want to make sure that we approach these topics from a biblical perspective and, and consider the encouragement that the Word of God has for us so first of all, we just want to understand the reality that this world is sinful. When Adam sinned in the garden, it plunged this entire world into sin. We're born into original sin, and we have sinful natures. And in this world, we shall have tribulation. Jesus promised us that in John chapter 16 and verse 33. Yes, in this world, you shall have tribulation. But don't be discouraged, child of God. He said you can be of good cheer. But why? Why can you be of good cheer in a world that is seems to have trouble on every side and we shall have tribulation. Why can you be of good cheer? Because Christ has overcome the world. So we need to always understand the reminder and the reality of salvation by grace alone, that there's nothing that can separate a child of God from his home in heaven, even if he takes his own life. And we want to focus on that a little bit later, but I want to go ahead and remind you of that. At the beginning, there is nothing that can separate a child of God, nothing in life, nothing in death, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So even if a child of God is tempted to such a degree to be deceived, to take their own life, don't be concerned that God's going to cast them in hell. No, if Christ died for their sins, there is nothing in life or in death that can separate them from their home in heaven. So these challenges are common to man, common to man. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And one of the ways that this is displayed of how common it is to man is we see these challenges so prevalently in Scripture, right, that we want to talk about today. It's common to man. You don't need to be embarrassed when you get discouraged or when you get depressed or even when you have thoughts to injure yourself. You need to address them and you need to repent of those, but those are not isolated incidents. Those are common to man. We're going to see good godly men 
Moses, Elijah, Job, Jonah. We see David being depressed and discouraged. We see John the Baptist being discouraged. There are so many good godly men that have struggled with this in times past. Why? Because these challenges are common to man. Remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now, now that Christ has died on the cross, he's not the rightful accuser of the brethren, but he still tries hard, doesn't he? He still brings accusations against us and gets us discouraged and depressed and deceives us to think that our life may not be worth living anymore. And Satan has been tempting people with those deceptions since the beginning of time. These are not new things. That's what I want us to understand. These are, no, these are common to man. Satan's playbook has not changed. He only has a couple plays. He only has a couple tactics. Now, they take a different form in America in 21st century. I mean, how many people have been discouraged or depressed or even suicidal, cutting their wrist or something because of this fictitious standard that has been created on social media or on the internet. Well, that's a new thing, isn't it? I mean, obviously people in Jesus's day weren't self-shaming because they didn't meet some standard that Instagram has put out there. So that's a new aspect of these challenges, but at their core, they're the same. And Satan has been tempting God's children with this since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden. It's not new. And we shouldn't be surprised when these challenges come. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as, so, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And that word strange means to receive as a guest or as a host. You may remember a verse where it says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers unawares. Well, that's a that's an unexpected guest that you weren't expecting to come into your home. So don't treat trials, don't treat troubles and tribulation in this world as an unexpected guest. No, it's a reality in a fallen world that trials, temptations, discouragement, even depression, it is a common guest. Discouragement is gonna come in all of our life. The question is, how do we deal with it, right? Our courage is prone to be extinguished. So how do we grow our courage? How do we get encouraged instead of discouraged? So don't think it's strange. Don't think you're a isolated incident. No, it's common to man. It's a common reality of being in this world. And therefore, since it is a common reality, we have to know how to properly deal with them. And also, since it's a common reality, Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, was tempted in all points as we are. And that's such a blessed thing to think about, that Jesus was the Son of God, but he was also the Son of Man. And he is intimately acquainted with the challenges of a sinful world, even more so than we are, really. He was in all points tempted as we are, and therefore we can have boldness to come unto him, to pray unto him, because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And that's one of the most important things that we don't need to neglect. We need to approach the Lord and Jesus Christ in prayer immediately when challenges come in our life. That should be our response to any trouble that we have, is we first of all go to the Lord in prayer. We should be praying to the Lord anyway, right? 
because we're supposed to be praying without ceasing. We should have this constant communication with God. So therefore, when trials come, we're already having this constant dialogue in prayer with the Lord anyway and praying without ceasing, or we ought to. So therefore, we bring those challenges to the Lord immediately, right? And there's so many great encouragements in Scripture that give us confidence to pray unto the Lord. Look at these verses in Psalm chapter 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my tower. You see, God is worthy to be praised. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. God is faithful, right? God's faithful. Don't think that you have something that is new and God has to come up with a new remedy for a new problem that you've had. This problem's never been in the history of the world. No, it's common to man, but God knows how to deliver his people out of trials. You see, God is faithful. God is faithful. So therefore, since God is faithful, since God is our rock, since God is our strength, he's our high tower, our salvation, therefore, what should we do? Verse three, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Even when I feel surrounded by the things of this world. Verse four, the sorrows of death compassed me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. I feel entrapped on every side. That's the language that Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter four that we'll look at a little bit later. I feel troubled on every side. Everywhere I look, I feel pressed in and I feel the heavy burden of this world. Well, what do I do in the midst of that? Verse six, in my distress, I I called upon the Lord and I cried unto my God and he heard me. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came even unto his ears. And we need to cry unto the Lord, but I also love these verses that affirm that God hears us. Psalm chapter three and verse four, I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. Psalm 31 and 22, in my haste, I'm cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications. Understand, Jesus knows our needs. Jesus is intimately acquainted with the struggles and the challenges and the sin of this world. And therefore, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. Jesus knows everything in this world. He knows the hairs of our head. He knows the sparrows. If one of those little bitty birds that we don't even think anything about, if he knows when every single one of them falls to the ground and he provides for the sparrows and he provides for the grass and he provides for the lilies and he knows even the, the hairs of our head, why would we ever doubt that he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart? Aren't you glad that we know from Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit of God makes intercession for us? with groanings that cannot be uttered, when we can't even articulate the burden of our heart properly, God takes those groanings and he brings them before God perfectly through the intercession of the Holy Spirit and through the intercession of Jesus Christ. So we never need to neglect prayer, right? Pray unto Jesus Christ during our time of need. And we also need to ask others to pray for us. Boy, it's true that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man and a righteous woman availeth much. James chapter five and in verse 16, 
We need the prayers of those that we love. We, we desire Jesus to make intercession for us, but we also ask others. Don't keep the problem to yourself. That's one of the great perils that we see in these instances is we get isolated. We don't discuss it with other people. We don't discuss the challenges that we're encountering, and we let that weight get so heavy because we don't have a release valve. Well, prayer is that release valve. Give it up to Jesus, but also request people that you love and that you trust to pray for you. And when you pray, when you get down on your knees, cast those burdens on the Lord. Those are not your burdens to bear. That's one of the most important things to understand. Christ is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We find that in Isaiah chapter 53. He knows the struggles of this world, and he knows it much better than we do. He knows how sorrowful and wicked this world is. But understand, he has took, we find this in Isaiah 53 and in verse 4, Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So those are not rightfully your grief and sorrow to carry anymore. We all have grief and sorrow in this world, and if we don't give it up to Christ, it will be too much for us to bear. But understand, child of God, that is not your burden to bear. Grief and sorrow of this world is not your burden to bear. You need to cast that on Christ because he has borne those griefs and sorrows for you. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You see, this is a soul challenge. This isn't just mental. It's not just emotional. This is, gets down to our soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you feel heavy laden, it's most likely that you're carrying burdens that are not rightfully yours. Give them up to Christ. Give them up to God in prayer. And also release the, the burden of that with other people. That's what we're going to see, particularly with Moses and with Elijah, that part of the remedy for their bad thinking, for their bad perspective in that moment, is to have other people bear the heavy load that you think that you are bearing yourself. Well, one of the ways that we do that is by saying, please pray for me, right? Please bear this load for me. And I'm having a difficult time letting it go, but you pray for me that I can let go of my labor and heavy laden, give it on Christ, and we will find rest for our souls. So one of the first things we need to remember is to pray. We never need to neglect prayer unto God in the midst of these challenges. Before we make our way to these specific instances, we need to discuss the need oftentimes for medical intervention. Now, it's not a embarrassing or shameful thing to have to have medicine to regulate bodily challenges or chemical imbalances that may be hindering your ability to process things rationally. It's not a shameful thing if you have high blood pressure to take medicine to regulate that high blood pressure. It's not a shameful thing for a diabetic to take insulin, is it? No. If you have a medical challenge, you need to get everything balanced out properly, get all the chemicals balanced out properly where you can rationally think through the situation. Remember, these challenges are common to man. And since these challenges are common to man, I don't think people needing medicine is abnormal either. For a period of time when I was in college, I had really severe stomach problems and the stress of college and everything else associated with that 
really heightened my stomach problems and I had tremendous problems associated with that. So there's a period of time where I was on a low dose anti-anxiety medication to just simmer everything down where I could function normally because just the normal stress of life, I couldn't function normally because of the sensitivity of my stomach and intestinal problems. I used it for a season of life, I used it for a period of time, and I was able to wean myself off of that, and I don't, at this moment, need it for that circumstance. So there's nothing wrong with seeking medicine to help regulate a bodily challenge, because ultimately, many of these are spiritual problems, and we need to deal with the spiritual problem, but you can only deal with a spiritual problem if your body and your mind is clear to be able to process it rationally. So if this is something that you're struggling with and you feel like you can't handle it, seek medical counsel. And I would encourage you, please seek Christian medical counsel, people that you trust that will not give you bad advice. And there may be a need to have some medicine to regulate some things where you can process this rationally and with a clear mind and with a healthy body. And also, you may need to seek counseling. You need to talk to your loved ones. You need to talk to your spouse if you have one. You need to talk to your pastor. But if you need more specific treatment than that, you may need to go to counseling. But if you go to counseling, be sure it is Christian counseling. Don't go find somebody in the Yellow Pages. Don't go find some secular person because that's going to cause many more problems because your counseling has to be centered on the truth of the Word of God, not with a humanistic perspective. So it is a reality that you might need and counsel with your doctor, with Christian people, with what you stand in need of. And if you medically need some medicine to help you process something during this time, then it's not a embarrassing or a shameful thing to do that. And I would also encourage you to seek professional Christian counseling to be able to talk through these situations from a biblical perspective and from a biblical worldview. So our first response in any challenge in life should be to pray. And we need to pray unto the Lord and ask others to pray for us. But there will inevitably be times where we get discouraged. It's just a part of life. It's common to man. The word discourage means to extinguish courage, dishearten, deject, depress the spirit, and deprive of confidence. And there are many things that can extinguish our courage here in this world. We have every reason to be bold and confident, don't we? We saw there in Psalm 18 that God is our rock. He's our strength. He's our salvation. We should never doubt, right? But, but we do. But we do. It's a reality that we do. The Israelites are a great example of that. After their mighty deliverance by the Passover and coming out of Egypt with untold riches, you didn't just get out of bondage, but you came out of bondage rich. And then you get to the Red Sea, and then they throw their hands up and say, oh no, we're going to die out here in the wilderness. And then what does God do? He opens the Red Sea for them. You would think after all of these instances that they would trust the Lord, but instead they turn on the Lord all the time. And one of those instances is in Numbers 21, and it's not that the Lord wasn't providing for them. They had just got dissatisfied with what the Lord was providing them. He gave them manna. God was faithful to give them manna six days out of the week. He promised that he would do that. And then they just got tired of the, quote, run-of-the-mill blessings, and they got, they got bitter, and then they ultimately got discouraged. That's the language that we find in Numbers 21 and verse 4. The soul of the people was much discouraged 
because of the way. Now, what happened when they got discouraged? They started murmuring against God. I'll tell you, this is the normal pattern when we get discouraged and depressed. We start blaming God. Lord, it's your fault. It's your fault we're out here in the wilderness. It's your fault that we're not happy with this providential, amazing manna that you're providing for us. They're blaming the Lord. And then they, they get bitter. They turn on the Lord. And then you may remember the story. That's when God sends fiery serpents. And he has to make the brazen serpent. And then the people that look on that serpent is healed, pointing toward Jesus Christ being lifted up. That connection that we find there in John chapter 3. But notice the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. We get a little uncomfortable. We are dealing with a challenge that we weren't expecting. We get discouraged. Our courage is extinguished. And what do we do? We just forget the past, right? We forget all of God's blessings in the rest of our life to where we should look at this circumstance and say, you know what? Yeah, this is difficult, but God who has delivered me in six trials, I know he's not going to forsake me in the seventh. I know he's going to bless me in this. That's what faith does. That's the reasoning of faith. But instead, there are times where we don't reason by faith. We get discouraged. And if you ever think that discouragement is something to be ashamed of or something that is uncommon, I think we can look at the example of John the Baptist. I mean, right after this account right here that we're going to see where John gets discouraged, right after this is when Jesus says there's not anyone that's born of woman that's been greater than John the Baptist. I mean, he puts him right up on the Mount Rushmore of faith, right? There's nobody that's better than him. But guess what? John was standing up for truth, right? He rebuked Herod for his inappropriate relationship. He gets cast in prison. And I've never been in prison, but boy, I can just imagine if I was in prison, I'd be down in the dumps too. I mean, he's by himself. He's isolated. Feels like he's probably going to die. And he ends up getting beheaded not too much longer after this. It's very easy to get discouraged, right? And you would think if there's anyone that was immune from discouragement, right? If there was anyone that's immune from discouragement, John the Baptist would have had to have been at the top of the list. He was prophesied of all the way back in Isaiah. I mean, how amazing is that? That hundreds of years before, they were prophesying of you, that you were going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And then he announces, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He points out the Messiah to the Jews. And then he baptizes is Jesus. And then he hears the voice of God. I mean, you would think if you heard the voice of God booming down from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's no way when you've heard the voice of God affirm the divinity of Jesus Christ. There's no way that you would ever doubt that he's the Messiah, right? Well, we doubt a lot of things when we get discouraged down in, in prison. And you may never been blocked up at the county jail, but there are times that we've been in our own prisons, right? We've been in prisons and we've been discouraged. And just like John, we doubt what we know. We doubt what we know. In, there in Matthew chapter 11, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really he that should come or do we look for another? John is doubting are you really the Messiah? <laughs> I mean, he heard the voice of God, but he's discouraged and he's doubting. And I love how Jesus was so gentle. God is so gentle with his children when we're in these fragile states. He could have rebuked John and he would be just in doing that. He would be just in rebuking all these four examples we're going to look at. Moses, Elijah, and Job and Jonah. He would be worthy in rebuking all of them harshly. But what does Jesus do? 
He gently brings the lamb up into his bosom as the great shepherd, right? He gently brings John to him and says, go and show John again the things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. So this gives us a great example of what do we need when we're discouraged? We're all going to get discouraged. If John the Baptist did, we sure are too. What do we need when we get discouraged? We need to be reminded of what we already know. We need to be reminded of what we already know. John knew it. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he doubted those truths in the midst of trial. And that's why we need to go to church. That's why we need to be fellowshipping with the saints and not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. We need to have our pure minds stirred up by way of remembrance. Why? Because we're so forgetful, right? We're so forgetful. Paul, when he was encouraging Timothy as a good minister, he said, look, if you're going to be a good minister, if you're going to be faithful in service to God in the ministry, you put the brethren in remembrance of these things. We need to be reminded of these things because we are so forgetful. We're so forgetful, just like John the Baptist. And sometimes we can get afraid. Fear will extinguish courage. There are many instances in Scripture where it uses language of fear not, neither be discouraged, and fear not, neither be dismayed. And fear will extinguish courage. Now, what's the extinguisher of fear? That's what we need to do, right? We need to extinguish fear. Well, what, how do we extinguish fear? By love. There's no fear in love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, there's no fear in love. We need to extinguish fear. Don't let fear extinguish your courage. Instead, extinguish fear. Don't be, don't be afraid of challenges and the things of this world. Let's read some of these verses that are just such great reminders for us. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10, fear thou not. Why? There's a lot to be afraid of in this world. Fear thou not. Why? For I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah chapter 43, and in verse one, thus saith the Lord that created thee, I have redeemed thee. Fear not, I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Be strong and have a good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the things of this world. They are heavy. The burdens are heavy. But praise God, we have Christ to help bear those burdens with us. So the best way to extinguish discouragement is to be encouraged, right? And we want to look at one example of encouragement. And ultimately, our encouragement has to come from the Lord, right? This is the remedy for all of this. The Lord is the remedy for everything. Our discouragement is encouraged in the Lord. Our depression is remedied when we hope in God. And those suicidal thoughts can be quenched when we trust in Jesus Christ. So in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we have this instance where David's on the run. He and his men are in Ziklag. The Amalekites come and raid their camp. They burned the camp. They took his women and children captive. And then they're just so overwhelmed. It says that David and all of his men, David wasn't immune from this. David had two wives taken and he was crying just like the rest of them. And it says here that David and his men wept until they had no more power to weep. They cried until they ran out of tears. And then not only was David personally distressed 
and he's weeping just like the rest of them. But then the men start blaming David, and they're talking of stoning David. So he's in this instance that everyone's blaming him. His men who have been faithful are wanting to kill him. He's personally grief-stricken. He's personally weeping, and just a horrible situation all around, right? 1 Samuel chapter 30 and in verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Which by the way, sometimes when people get distressed, they're going to turn on people that they know they can trust, right? Not only do we turn on the Lord, but we turn on people that we know and love sometimes. We start deflecting. David was discouraged greatly distressed, emotionally overwhelmed, and people that he knew and loved were talking about killing him. What was his remedy? God was his remedy, right? He's our fortress. He's our buckler. He's our protector. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Ultimately, it has to be the Lord that encouraged. Don't put all of your hopes and dreams and encouragement and joy and satisfaction in the things of this world. Don't put it in other people. Don't put it in other people. There are people that we love so much in this world, but they're going to let you down because they're sinners just like you. Don't put it in people. Don't put it in a job. Don't put it in a child. Don't put it in a, in a house. All of those things can fail you. We have to find encouragement and satisfaction and completeness in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. So it's prone that we will all get discouraged and we need to encourage ourselves in the Lord. But it's inevitable that sometimes we won't quench that discouragement early on, and a prolonged period of discouragement can lead to depression. We'd like to look at this from Psalm 42 and 43, and when you look at this, these psalms are not attributed to any one person. I believe that we could reasonably assume that these are penned by David, the language certainly fits his, a season of his life when he's running from Saul. Also, we're going to find the word cast down as a shepherding term, which would apply to David. And when you look at Psalm 42 and 43, I think we can look at them together. I think we can look at them as pretty much just one psalm with three stanzas. We're going to find we have a chorus line that concludes each of these three stanzas. So it's really one psalm in chapters 42 and 43, one psalm with three verses. So in the first verse of this, we find that the psalmist, which I'm going to discuss this as being David, David is deprived and thirsty from the presence and the fellowship of God. He looks at a young heart getting water by the brook, and he says, I'm just as famished as that young heart. I, I, I desire to crave and fellowship with God, but I'm not able to. He's been crying nonstop. He says his tears were his meat night and day. He was being mocked and ridiculed by scoffers. Where is your God? You, you proclaimed the power of God when you killed Goliath. Where's your God now? You, you killed Goliath, but you can't even defeat King Saul. Where's your God now? And one of the worst circumstances of why he was in this state was he was isolated and alone and not able to fellowship with the saints that kept the holy day. That's why we don't need to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need the structure of the church. We need the, the encouragement of fellow saints during these challenging times. And then we find the chorus that's repeated three times in these two chapters. We find the chorus of this 
which is why art thou cast down on my soul? Why art thou disquieted? And, and he, you can see he's struggling with the why. And sometimes we don't understand it either. We struggle with the why too, right? I mean, I know that this world's bad and I know this is a difficult circumstance, but I dealt with this better last time. Why is this such a struggle? Why am I cast down? Why is my soul discouraged? The word for cast down here is a shepherding term. It, it would be common for a sheep to lie down on their side and then accidentally roll over. And when that sheep got on their back with their legs straight up in the air, there was pretty much no ability for them to get off their back. The only hope that a sheep had when they were cast down, the only hope that a sheep had when they were on their back with their legs up in the air, the only hope they had was the shepherd to come and find them. And I love how it says his soul was cast down and this connects so beautifully with Psalm 23 and verse four, that the Lord is my shepherd and he restores my soul. So David's soul was cast down. It was on its back. It was helpless. And what does God do? He comes and restores your soul. He puts you back on your fours and brings you back to close fellowship with him. So David's soul was cast down. Well, what's the remedy for a cast down soul? The great shepherd, right? That the Lord is going to restore us. His soul was also disquieted, which means clamor, a loud noise, almost like a great commotion in war. And that's kind of how we feel. We feel like our souls are raging inside of us. I mean, outside we may be sitting in silence, but our, our souls are just raging inside of us. Well, Christ is the Prince of Peace, right? He's not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace. We need to be still and know that I am God. You need to spend time with the Lord in your prayer closet with just you and the Lord. And I bet that you probably haven't been spending as much time in your prayer closet with the Lord as you should have if, you're feel, if your soul feels that disquieted. We need to get back to basics. We need to pray unto the Lord in private. But ultimately, what is the remedy for a cast down, disquieted, and depressed soul? What's the remedy? What's the second half of this verse in Psalm 42 and in verse 5? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance. Hope in God. Hope is a confident expectation of future good. We see God's faithfulness in the past, and that gives us an encouragement and an excitement for God's blessings in the future. We see this very strongly with Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a lot of reasons to legitimately be depressed. I mean, we have some challenges in our life, but we don't have anything like Jeremiah did. He was called to preach and everyone ridiculed him and everyone pretty much hated him. And he didn't have a single convert that scripture confirms the whole time. He preached faithfully, but everyone ignored him. Everyone mocked him. Then he got thrown in a pit by the king. And it, it may have been down in this pit that he said this in Lamentations chapter three. My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. That talks about courage being extinguished, isn't it? His courage was gone for a period of time. I remembered my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. That's what we do. We, we think about all the bad, right? We, we remember our affliction. We remember all the bad things. Well, what you need to start doing is take the counsel of the hymn writer. Start counting your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And then the tone changes in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 21. This I recall in my mind, therefore have I hope. You see, hope is the remedy. Hope is the remedy for depression. It's a confident expectation of future good. And what was the basis of his hope? 
You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's not just a frou-frou feeling. It is based on reality. It's based on substance. It's based on evidence. And what is the basis of that faith and the basis of that hope? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. God is good to them that wait for him and to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. We need to be reminded that God is faithful. God is faithful. That's what we found there in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. Why? Because he promised he wouldn't do it. We're graven in the palm of his hands. There is no ability for us to be removed from God. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his blood. He can't deny himself. God will not forsake us. And we have to remind ourselves of that. We have to remind ourselves in these moments where we're overwhelmed and we're afflicted. We have to remind ourselves of these truths that we already know, just like Jeremiah and just like David. But understand, discouragement and depression doesn't go away right away. We find these, these two Psalms and we have three verses of this Psalm. Well, you arrive at a good location there in Psalm 42 and 5. Yes, I'm going to hope in God, but guess what? Those thoughts come back to your mind again. They come back to your mind again. And then you start struggling yet again. Psalm 42 and verse 6, the next verse. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. And inevitably, and this is the second go round, right? He's already remembered what he already knew. He knows he needs to hope in God, but it's not easy. He starts blaming God. Verse nine, I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning? You know, he didn't know why. And he feels like that God has forsaken him. God hasn't forsaken him. I'm right there with you in the midst of the struggle, just like the Three Hebrew men, I'm right there with you in the midst of the fire. He continues to struggle with scoffers that are mocking him, and he arrives at the same location again. Praise God for that. Well, that's what we have to remind ourselves again and again and again and again of what we know. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? The answer is the same. Hope thou in God, for I will yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance. So now David's got it together, right? He's reminded himself of that twice. He's got it together. No. He starts all over again. He starts all over again and saying, Lord, why? Why are the wicked oppressing me? Why are I having all these problems? And you start blaming the Lord. If God really loved me, why would I be having these problems? Because they're common to man. Because they're common to man. And then he arrives at the same location again. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him for who is the health of my countenance. So hope in God, that's the remedy for depression. And if depression remains for a long period of time, it's unfortunate that some people can be tempted to take their own life. Suicide is a reality in this world, in this fallen world. And before we look at these specific instances, I want to affirm the eternal security of all of God's children because there's a prevalent teaching in Christianity today that says if you take your own life, if you commit suicide, God's going to send you to hell. God forbid. 
God forbid, that is not in Scripture. Praise God that's not in Scripture. There is nothing in life or in death. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. There is nothing in life or in death. The very first thing that's mentioned that cannot separate us from the love of God is death. Is death. There is no action in life that we can perform. There is no action in death that we can perform that can separate us from the love of God. And I'm glad when God gives us these scriptural truths, he always gives us examples to back it up. And one of those examples is King Saul. And King Saul lived a rebellious life, a sinful life, and we don't really have much basis of having a lot of confidence in him. But we have this instance of the spirit of Samuel being called up. And the spirit of Samuel said, Saul, you're going to be with me tomorrow in heaven. Now, it'd be very easy to look at King Saul's life and say, you know what? He probably wasn't really a child of God. He, he may have went to hell. And you know what? I'm not going to say that's unjustified. However, one thing that Samuel did say is that you and your sons will be with me tomorrow, okay? And who was one of Saul's sons that died that day? Jonathan. So Saul went to the same place as Jonathan and Samuel. I don't know of anyone that would doubt the eternal security of Jonathan, right? So Saul and Jonathan and Samuel all went to the same place, and that place has to be heaven. So the next day, Saul was injured in battle. He felt like he was going to die. He didn't want the Philistines to take him and mock him. So he takes his sword. He fell on his sword and he killed himself. Saul committed suicide. King Saul committed suicide. But scripture went out of its way in this account from Samuel to affirm the eternal security of a child of God who took his own life. Okay, And there is nothing in life, nothing in death, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. There's nothing in death or in life, and that includes taking your own life, that can separate us from the love of God. Praise God for the eternal security of his children. Amen. So as we consider these suicidal thoughts popping in our head, we want to look at the bad examples first. And maybe the worst example of this is Jonah. And you know the story of Jonah. He is called to go preach to Nineveh, and he didn't want to. He figured that the Lord would be long-suffering, just like he ended up being. And he said, I don't want those people to be saved. I want them to be burned up like Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the enemies of Israel. I don't want them to receive any grace from God. So therefore, I'm just going to not go. And then God sent a whale to turn him around. And then he ends up going and preaching. And then, lo and behold, which is exactly what Jonah was afraid of, God gives them a space to repent. They do repent. And God's going to save them and delay his destruction of the city of Nineveh. And that's what Jonah was afraid of all along. <laughs> he didn't want them saved. He didn't want them not destroyed. He wanted the Lord to light them up like a fireworks show. So therefore, Jonah's just mad. The, ra the reality is that Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed, and he didn't want to preach to them because he was afraid the Lord might save them. So now he's just mad at what happened. He's mad. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 3. Therefore now, Lord, take my life. For it is better for me to die than live. And then Jonah goes out of the city. He makes him a booth. The Lord gives him a gourd to protect his head. God, the Lord sends a worm to eat the gourd. And then he's all upset about the gourd. And he said, do you have a right to be angry about that gourd? And then Jonah said, yeah, I have a right to be angry, even unto death. 
which is ridiculous. But then God says, look, if you had pity on this little bitty gourd, why didn't you have pity on this city? There were no doubt children of God in this city. Why didn't you have pity on them? Many of them that are too young to even discern the right hand and the left. So Jonah just had a bad attitude. And sometimes we just have bad attitude, right? Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations. Sometimes we want things to happen and they don't turn out the way we want them to and we blame God for it and we go and have a pity party and say, well, it's not worth it anymore. Well, if you have that attitude, you just need to repent. You need to repent of that. And then we look at Job. Look at the example of Job. And we know that all the suffering that came in his life and he lost all of his livestock and his servants, his property, and then his 10 children pass away. And then he keeps that testimony, praise God, at the end of chapter one. Then Satan comes back the second time and he afflicts his body with grievous boils. And then his wife turns on him and his wife tells him to curse God and die. And then his three friends show up and they tell him what a horrible person he is. And you've got this unrepentant sin that it's all your fault while this is happening. You need to repent. Well, in the middle of all that, Job is just so overwhelmed that he says in Job chapter three, let the day perish wherein I was born and the night in which it was said, there's a man child conceived. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of my belly? He said, it'd be better for me to have just died in infancy, for me to have been a miscarriage, than for me to put up with all these horrible things that have happened in my adult life. And then we follow the story of Job and his friends accuse him. And then Job gets a little self-righteous. He gets a little bit too worked up in the middle of that argument. Elihu comes and rebukes Job. And then God comes and rebukes Job. And God shows up and said, listen, Job, you got a little bit too self-righteous. He says some things he shouldn't have said. And he says, listen, Job, where were you at when I created the earth? Where were you at when I did all the, where were you? Where were you? Where were you? How have you contributed to this? And then, the, and then Job, eventually by the end of it, he said, I messed up. I messed up. I, I shouldn't have said that, Lord. Job chapter 40 and verse 4, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. And then the Lord <laughs> lays back into him again for two more chapters. And then he finally says the same thing. I will abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I should not have uttered things that I understood not, things too wonderful for me. I should have kept my mouth shut. It's what he says. And that should be our reminder when we are in the manifest presence of the glory of God. We, we should not have a pity party when we are in the presence of God. No, we should see we don't deserve anything. We are wretched. And that's what Job said at the end of the first chapter, right? Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return hither. I showed up with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That should be our perspective, right? We don't deserve anything. And we, we don't have the right to blame God. And that's what starts happening in all these instances. And Job does it too. He blames God. We don't have the right to blame God for this. We don't have the right to blame God for the challenges that come in our life. Next, we'd like to look at Moses. And Moses had a difficult job. I mean, he had to lead these stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked, and many times hard-hearted Israelites. And he got tired of it. He got tired of it. They show up in Numbers chapter 11 complaining yet again, and he feels the weight and burden of all of these millions, probably two million Israelites all on himself. And he starts complaining and he starts blaming the Lord. Numbers chapter 11, verse 11. 
Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? Lord, this is your fault. You're the one who called me to this. I'm the one that said, I'm not able. I'm the one who said I can't speak right. I'm the one who said I can't do all this stuff. Lord, you're the reason I'm here. You're the reason I'm having to deal with these rebellious people. It's your fault, Lord. That is the natural response for us to blame God. And please, child of God, do not do that. Do not blame God. God loves you. God is faithful, and he's blessing you in the midst of that trial, even if you don't understand it. But Moses felt this burden so heavy that he said, I can't handle it. I can't handle it. Verse 14, I am not able to bear all this people alone because it's too heavy for me. You see, we talked earlier about bearing burdens that are not yours. Well, give them up to God. This wasn't Moses' burden. This was God's burden, right? God was using Moses to lead these people, but this is not your burden. And we get in a bad problem when we start carrying burdens that are not ours. So Moses says, this is my burden. And the Lord's essentially going to tell him, no, it's not your burden. It's my burden. But then Moses says, if you will deal with me thus, kill me, I pray thee, out of my hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, let me not see my wretchedness. He said, Lord, take my life. Lord, I can't handle it. And that's what happens. We feel the pressure of this world so heavy and we say, we just can't take it anymore. We can't take it. The pressure's too heavy. The weight is too heavy. Well, yeah, the weight is too heavy for you. Give that weight up to Christ, right? Give that weight up to Christ, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, what is the remedy? What is the remedy for Moses when he said, my life is not worth living anymore? Well, he gives him some help. He gives him some help. He sends 70 men to help bear the burden, and he puts the Holy Spirit upon them to help him bear the burden. And that's what God will do. We're going to see that with Elijah too. He gives him helpers to help bear the burden. Don't bear the burden alone. Talk to people. Don't get alone by yourself and start thinking, I'm the only one that can solve the situation. You're not the only one that can solve the situation. There's a good chance that God's the only one that can solve the situation. And don't ever forget that God's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. Even after God gives Moses this, this encouragement, in verse 23, Moses is still questioning God. And then the Lord says, listen, is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt now see whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Don't ever question God's ability, right? Don't ever question the power of God. God's hand is not waxed short. So when we feel the burdens of life weighing down heavy on us, and we feel like that, man, this life just isn't even worth living anymore. Pray unto God first, right? Pray unto Jesus Christ, and he will send you help. He will send you 70 men to bear the burden with you. And next we go to Elijah. Elijah, who is such a great reminder that even after the most powerful moments in our life will be sometimes the most severe temptations we will ever face. We see that in the life of Jesus Christ, don't we? We see him being baptized, and then immediately he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. So Elijah has this mighty victory on Mount Carmel. He stares down Ahab and 850 false prophets, calls down fire from heaven, and the people turn back to God. And that's important. Elijah may have been justified in having this pity party a couple years ago, but now the people have turned back to God because of this powerful display. But then, after this mighty mountaintop experience, Jezebel tells Elijah later that day, that I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you by this day tomorrow. And you would think that this bold prophet, after what happened, he would say, I'm not scared of you, Jezebel. God will protect me. Obviously, that's what Elijah would say, right? No. 
He gets scared. We talked earlier about how fear can extinguish courage, how fear can be the beginning of this spiral downward. He gets afraid. He gets afraid and he runs away just a couple days after, just a couple days after this mighty victory and a day's journey in the wilderness. He sat down under a juniper tree. This is in 1 Kings 19 and verse 4. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Just a day or two after this mighty victory, he's suicidal. He said, Lord, take my life, take my life. Now, what was God's remedy? I love how in these instances, the Lord didn't just chew them out. I mean, he wouldn't be unjustified in doing that. But instead, the Lord is very gentle with his struggling children. So what did God do? Number one, step number one for Elijah and for us, get some good sleep and get something to eat. Take care of yourself. Take care of your health. Get some good sleep and get something to eat. And God sent an angel to bake a cake for him and have a cruise of oil. And he laid down and slept. And then God lets him do the same thing all over again. So he got a good night's sleep and good food. And then he got another good night's sleep and the angel prepared him through the second time. And then that second meal, he went in 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that. And isn't it great to also be reminded that God will send angels to minister to us during our time of need. We even saw that with Jesus as the son of man. After those three severe trials, God sent angels to minister to him and God will send angels to minister to us as well. So now Elijah goes on a trip over to Mount Horeb and he's still moping around and still complaining about everything that's wrong. And God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he said, look, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that loves you. I'm the only one that's serving you. And he knew that wasn't true. He knew that there had been 100 prophets that had been hidden in two caves. He knew there was at least 100 prophets left. And furthermore, the whole nation of Israel had just been converted on Mount Carmel, right? So he's distorting reality. I think that's an important thing to be reminded is when we get in these states, we distort reality. We forget what's true. We forget the reality of the situation. And he's just creating this narrative in his mind that I'm the only one left. No, you're not the only one left. And then God speaks to him in a still, small voice. He doesn't speak to him in these mighty cataclysmic signs. He speaks to him in a still, small voice. And what was the remedy? What was the remedy that God told Elijah when he was in this depressed, even suicidal state? Number one is take care of your health, right? Get a good night's sleep, eat some good food, be well rested, get healthy so you can think logically. Then he gave him four encouragements for the future, a hope and a vision toward the future. God told Elijah that there was more work for him to do in the kingdom. He told him that you still have to anoint Hazel, the king of Syria, and you have to anoint Jehu, the king over Israel. So get to, get to work. He said, I'm not done with you yet. Get busy, get to work. And isn't it amazing that the man that asked God to take his own life is one of two men that didn't die? Elijah asked God to take his own life, and a while later, God swoops him up to heaven in a chariot of fire, Elijah asked the Lord to take his own life and he didn't even physically die. How about that? Because there was more work for him to do in the kingdom. And understand, if you're still here, God's not done with you yet. God's not done with you yet. There's more work for you to do in the kingdom. And he also gives him a friend to help bear the burden. He said, you go find Elisha 
and he's going to carry on your ministry. He's going to carry on your work. We have to be reminded that we are not intended to go through this life alone. Two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken, especially in the ministry. When God sent out the 12 and the 70 disciples, he didn't send them out by themselves. He sent them out two by two, right? Two by two. So just like with Moses, he gives a faithful friend to help him in his time of need. So just like with Moses, he gives Elijah a faithful friend to help bear his burdens. And then God reminds Elijah that the wicked will have their day of justice. Jezebel and Ahab that are persecuting you right now, you're going to anoint Hazel and you're going to anoint Jehu and then you're going to anoint Elisha. And essentially all the enemies that are persecuting Elijah are going to be killed by one of those three people. So remember that the wicked are not getting off scot-free. The wicked are not going to win. They're not going to win. And then God reminds Elijah that you are not alone because I have reserved 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. You want to pretend like you're all alone, Elijah? You are not alone. You're not alone. And I want to tell you, child of God, you're not alone. You're not alone. There are people that are there to help you. And if you don't feel like you have anyone, please contact us. We'll pray for you. We'll counsel with you. We'll read the word of God with you. There are people there to help you. God has reserved 7,000 faithful disciples that are going to serve God with you. Remember, you are not alone. You are not alone. So with Elijah, take care of your health, good night's sleep, good food. Remember, there's more work for you to do in the kingdom. He sends a friend to help bear the burden of his ministry. Remember, the wicked will have their day of justice, and you are not alone because God has reserved his righteous remnant. Now, we've looked at some negative examples. Now we want to look at a positive example, the Apostle Paul. If there's anyone who had a rightful option to sit around and mope all the time, I think the Apostle Paul could be at the top of the list. I'll tell you, he talks in Scripture about being shipwrecked and beaten and all these things that he endured for the kingdom. And those are things to pout about. But the man who was in prison and still singing praises to God at midnight in Acts chapter 16 is the same man who wrote from prison, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice in Philippians chapter four and verse four. So Paul had the right perspective, the right perspective. He did not discount the reality of the suffering around him, but he also didn't let it get him discouraged. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses eight and nine. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And that's a reality that many times we'll feel pressed in with this world. We feel troubled on every side. We feel perplexed. There's a lot of things we don't understand. Just like the psalmist. Why? 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 Well, I don't know. I don't know why. Persecuted. Cast down. We feel troubled, perplexed, persecuted, and cast down. But in spite of those things, we are not distressed. We are not in despair. We are not forsaken, and we are not destroyed. You see, that's the perspective we have to have in this world. We don't put our head in the sand and say, oh, there's no problems. No, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems. And they're all around us. We're troubled on every side. But in spite of that, we're not distressed. We're not in despair. We're not forsaken. And ultimately, we're not destroyed. This world's going to knock you down. This world's going to knock you down, child of God. But we just have to get back up. Proverbs 24 and verse 16, for a just man falleth seven times and riseth again. This world's going to knock you down, but just get back up. Get back up by the grace of God. 
And then at the end of Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he knows he's about to die. He knows his time is short and he is alone, all except for Luke. And he's having, at least for a couple verses, maybe a little bit of a pity party. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Other men that I love, they're going to serve other churches. Timothy, will you please bring me the word of God, the parchments, and my favorite cloak I left at Troas. He remembers his enemy, Alexander the coppersmith, that did him much evil. He also remembers when he was brought to his first court appearance in Rome, all men forsook him. So sad. So Paul's an old man. He's in prison. He's about to die. His body's broken down due to serving the Lord and being beaten many times. He's cold. He doesn't have his cloak. He doesn't have the written word of God. He's only got one friend with him. And he's reminiscing about all the problems he's had, all the people that have left me, all the people that have persecuted me. So is Paul depressed right here? He's acknowledging the reality of the sufferings of this world, but is he depressed? No, he's not depressed. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. Notwithstanding, in spite of all of that, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with me. Yes, everyone else forsook me, but it was okay because God was with me. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And ultimately, this is what undergirds our hope and joy that should be able to get us out of these depressive states. Ultimately, this is the confidence. We talked about hope in God. This is the hope in God that we have. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God's going to deliver me from every evil work. And even if evil works and the wicked decree of Nero take my life here in this world, I know that God will not forsake me and I will be with him in heaven. He will deliver me unto his heavenly kingdom. You see, we can have joy in the midst of suffering. We can have joy in the midst of suffering. And the main reason we can have joy in the midst of suffering is because of our eternal security, right? Because of our eternal salvation. So as we try to conclude this message on dealing with discouragement and depression and suicide, I want to remind you that these struggles are common to man. We see that in Scripture. These are common to man. So don't be embarrassed about that. Talk to other people about it. Don't be embarrassed to talk about it. If you need medication to help you during a certain time, seek out Christian doctors and Christian counseling to help you with that. Our first remedy should always be to pray unto God in prayer, right? He is our great burden bearer. He is tempted at all points as we are, and therefore we come boldly to the throne of grace to pray for the Lord, to bless us and intercede for us, and also ask others to pray for you. Certainly we need the prayers of those we love while traveling or life's rugged way. Discouragement is inevitable, and we certainly see from John the Baptist that when we get discouraged and encountering difficult times, inevitably we will have trials and troubles in this world. But we need to be reminded of what we already know, right? We need to be reminded again and again of what we already know. We need to have our pure minds stirred up by way of remembrance. We see from the Psalms that it's difficult to break the cycle of depression, why? Why is my soul cast down? Well, ultimately, we have to arrive at the same conclusion as David. 
Hope thou in God. Hope thou in God. And if someone is tempted to take their own life in suicide, there is nothing in life or in death that can separate a child of God from a love of God. All children of God are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. Job and Jonah, they really just had some bad attitudes. And sometimes we just need to repent of bad attitudes and change our course of action. Moses, he was bearing a burden that was not his to bear. He needed to give that burden up to the Lord, and you need to give your burden up to the Lord as well. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55 and in verse 22. And he will also send faithful men to help you. He will send men to help you. And then Elijah, don't be by yourself. Don't be by yourself. Don't get isolated and create this false reality, this false narrative. Take care of yourself physically. Eat good food. Get good sleep. God will send angels to minister unto you. And also, if you're still here, God's not done with you. God's not done with you. There's more for you to do in the kingdom. God will send you a friend to help bear your burdens. We need to be reminded that the wicked who afflict us will have their day of justice. And ultimately, we are not alone. There is a righteous remnant that is faithful to the Lord. We are not alone here in this world. And then from Paul, we can see the overcoming, conquering joy in the midst of tribulations, right? We may feel troubled, perplexed, persecuted, and cast down, but I hope we never get distressed, in despair, forsaken, and feel destroyed. We may be cast down, but we're not destroyed. We're going to get knocked down in this world, but by God's grace, we hope to get back up. A just man falls down seven times, but he rises again. We hope by God's grace that he will bless us to fight the good fight of faith, to be strengthened and encouraged, cast down, but not destroyed. Hope thou in God. Hope thou in God, child of God, and he shall strengthen the health of thy countenance. May God richly bless you according to his will. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.